again in 2 Corinthians. We're going to conclude this chapter this morning as we begin here with actually verse number 16. And last week we showed three things here about the false apostles here that, uh, that Paul exposes concerning them. And uh, there were three areas of tactic that uh, Paul exposes here. First of all, these false teachers apparently associated themselves and their mission with the original apostles. So they took upon themselves the designation of super apostles. And I think uh, particularly with uh, James and Peter and John, who uh, were the inner circle there, and Paul uh, speaks of them in, and I don't think... Der- derogatorily, but uh, uh, in the sense that the the way these false teachers had regarded them, he says, who seemed to be pillars there in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9. And Paul himself then argues that, hey, (laughs) yes, uh, these these fellows did walk with Jesus for for some three years, but I'm not the least inferior to these super apostles. Even though he says I am nothing. And I think in the opinion uh, of the super apostles uh, as they regarded and as maybe some in the church there. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 11. The evidence then uh, ought to have been clear to, to the church that, G, that Paul was indeed a true apostle. He said, look what is before your eyes. And in uh, the 12th verse there, he, he explained the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. This was, he said, uh, should be clear to you. The second thing was that these false apostles appeared appealed, excuse me, to the Corinthians' uh, desire for the superiority of rhetoric, rhetorical excellence. They like to hear these flowery preaching and these flowery sermons. That's, in fact, that's why they uh, took to uh, Apollos, because he was an eloquent speaker. And uh, they criticized Paul because he seemed to be a little bit... Uh, stumbling and uh, maybe uh, didn't speak as well. Maybe his appearance probably was a short fellow and and uh, they, that just didn't impress them. So he says there in the t- chapter 10, verse 10, his letters, they, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech. Weak means... No account. It's you know. It's he's not strong. You're not a strong person. You're not a dynamic person. He's a weak person. And his speech, that is his re, uh, eloquent rhetoric, was of no account. He didn't measure up to their standards. But Paul argued that that what was really needed and what should have been obvious to them was that his, pre- his preaching, his ministry there, was in the demonstration of the Spirit and power so that their faith might stand uh, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Second, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3-5. to five. This care required his... De- that he be determined, as he says in uh, chapter 1 and verses, verse, uh, uh, ch- excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not how I say it, it's what is said. As a consequence, he was with them, he says, in weakness. And I think weakness doesn't mean lack of of strength. Weakness means in appearance. He doesn't 
doesn't look all that important. But he says in, in, uh, that uh, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Why? Because he knew this was a hard place. And he wanted the work, the work of the gospel to succeed here. So he said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message was not with plausible words of human wisdom. Eloquent presentation. So unlike the super apostles, his primary emphasis was not to wow the church with superior rhetoric, which was so greatly valued there in the city of Corinth. So he says then, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. That's verse 6. Again, Paul desired that his words, his logos, that is the content of his message, and the kerygma, the presentation of that message, should not be judged by human standards, by wisdom, eloquent delivery of language, and, and uh, flowery delivery, and so forth, but rather the demonstration of the Spirit and power. Then the third way that the false apostles appealed to the Corinthians was in their method of support. How they supported themselves. And, here, and here's where it's interesting. They used a biblical standard. As is described there in the law, the laborer is worthy of his hire. You shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. And Paul says, did, uh, did, was God speaking here uh, that he was concerned for oxen? No, but rather this principle that the laborer is worthy of his hire. Pay him what he deserves. And if he's laboring among you in the gospel, then the gospel should be taking care of his necessities. In fact, Jesus, Jesus made that clear too. Not only by means of principle, but by the pattern that the Lord Jesus Christ himself established when he sent out the disciples. Go taking nothing with you. And when you get there and are received into a home, and this is a, a worthy home, then remain there and let them take care of you. And so, this is what they did. This is what the super apostles did. But Paul came to them taking nothing from them. And that, that, that was a source of criticism. How come he's not asking for you for, for a, a wage? And he explains that. But here's the point. These false prophets devoured. It says they devoured. Literally to forcibly appropriate another's property. This is the same word that's used there in Luke chapter 20, verse 47, when Jesus was criticizing the Pharisees who devoured widows' houses. And then turned around and for a pretense made long prayers. <laughs> Appeared spiritual while they destroyed widows' lives by taking their property. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus said they will receive the greater condemnation. They're going to get judged for this. Paul then refused to be supported by the church because he saw that asserting his right to biblical support would be a problem. So he sought to distance himself in this regard. He said there in chapter 2 verse 17... We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, and in the sight of God speak we in Christ.
His love for them motivated his refusal to be supported by them lest it should create a problem in their understanding. He wanted them to see who was really robbing them. It was the Judaizers who were the, who were the really peddlers of God's word, robbing the church for personal profit. As we note here from verses 20 and 21, and so here's where we begin this message is to deal with this issue here that's before them. Paul, and we begin with Paul's right to boast. This is, this is interesting. He uses this terminology because that's how they operated. They like to brag. And you see that, you see that constantly today. I remember, you know, early in my ministry there, being impressed with the certain churches because they were the fastest growing Sunday school in the state or they were the fastest growing church in the nation and and uh, we and do, and the, and the preacher had to have doctor before his name doctor so and so when i was in seminary i was informed you have enough credit hours that all you need to do is write a dissertation and you can get a, you can earn a doctor's degree. Of course, it would have cost me too, but I thought, I thought about that. I said, what, what would that do for me to have this doctor's degree and have doctor in front of my name to impress people that I was somebody Important that I had special learning. And, that, and at that point I determined, no, I'm not going to do that. And I think I've told you that other friends of mine who did and what it did for them. I, what I could see that it did for them. I said, this is not good. This is not what, how I want to represent Jesus. In some prideful way, and so some fellow comes along, has written a book, you know, as a he's this doctor, so and so pastor, of this great church over here has three books that hit the New York Times bestseller list. Wow! Who's getting the glory? Boasting. You need to come to our church. We're the fastest growing church in Lemonar. Dr. So-and-so is our pastor. And he has 14 books on the bestseller list. See, Paul, that, was, that was the issue here with Paul. He said, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But if you do, accept me as a fool. What is a fool? What is a fool? See, Paul here is asserting his right to boast. Not, not in the sense that he wants to be a braggart. No. But, into, but to, to use it in a way that will reveal how these false apostles are false apostles. They like to brag. So if they're going to brag, I'm going to brag too. And if you think me a fool, think me a fool. And accept me that way, so that I too may boast a little. That's verse 16. So the question here is, what is a fool? A fool, according to biblical definition, is one who acts rashly, without divine direction or instruction. The psalmist wrote, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, the translators have added the verb, is. There is no God. But the original Hebrew has no verb. It just says the fool has said in his heart, no God. And I believe that the, the uh, it, it emphasis here is that I do not accept or acknowledge God has anything to do with it. 
The fool has said in his heart. The one who acts rashly is actually saying, God has nothing to do with this. And the reason is because they are corrupt. And they do abominable deeds. Abominable means something that God has explicitly declared to be wrong. No wonder they don't want God as a part of it. And that's you see that today. More and more of this is showing up today where men come out and openly ridicule God because the deeds that they are wanting you to accept in their lives are an abomination to God. Indeed, Paul, or the psalmist continues, there is none who does good. Paul cites this in Romans. And what is good? Good is defined as something that is of God. A good thing is good because it is of God. Remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Good master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response to him was, Why do you call me good? He wasn't denying his divinity. But he was questioning what this man's standard was. What is good? He said, there is none good save God. Whatever is good is, a, is from God. That's why the fool says in his heart, no, God. God has nothing to do with it. God is not in it. He will not even acknowledge God in any way. And sadly, that's how the Pharisees operated. They, they professed to know God, but in their deeds, devouring widows' houses, they proved that they did not want God and did not have God at all in their lives. Their life was not good. So then in response, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of man to see if there were any who did understand, that is, who, would, who really were wise and not fools, because these people seek after God. Do you seek after Him? Before you do anything, before you make any decision, before you want to live out your day, do you seek after Him first? So then he concluded, God concluded, they have all turned aside together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not even one. That's Psalm 14, Psalm 14 verses 1 to 3. So, one who is a fool acts without considering God or his way in any of his plans or actions. So we read there in Proverbs 1 verse 7, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Was Paul a fool? That should be obvious. He said, look what's, what's obvious. So don't think me a fool, but if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. Was Paul really then a fool? Or did he use this terminology because his enemies sought to convince the church that Paul, not they, were actually the ones acting rashly? Remember, these were false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, disguising themselves as servants of righteousness, according to verses 13 and 15. Paul was assured their end will correspond to their deeds, just like God stated in Psalm 14. So who actually acted rashly? Paul or the super apostles? Paul says, I repeat, 
there in this opening verse. I repeat. And I think what he's saying there is referring back to verse number one. I wish you would bear with me a little in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. The motivation for his alleged foolishness was because he was jealous of the for the church, as he we read there in verses two to six. He was the one who had arranged their betrothal to Jesus. But now he finds another suitor has attracted their attention as luring Christ's bride away from Christ. And he will not put up with it. Satan was behind this attack on the church. The Judaizers and super apostles were his instruments of the attack. Seeking to deceive and to woo the church to a false Christ with a different gospel and a different spirit. Sadly, at this point, the church seemed to be willing to listen to the claims of these false teachers, and that's what disturbed Paul the most. So if you're willing to listen to them, he says, listen to me too. If you think I'm a fool, let me be a fool, but listen to me. And he's all, he is all out to awaken the church to the danger that was really before her. And if Paul was a fool, the church needed to understand that he and his associates were, according to the scripture, fools for Christ's sake. If they were acting rashly, it was for Christ's sake. On the other hand, he says that of the church, you are wise in Christ. And that, boy, the sarcasm just drips. <laughs> Were they really wise? Had they thought so? And so Paul has to present to them. Here's, here's what they're doing to you. And you're taking it. You're sitting back with a grin on your face while they rob you. Paul admitted his weakness, but the church presumed strength. But then he says... You are held in honor. We're despised. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. And when reviled, we bless. And when persecuted, we endure. And when slandered, we entreat. That's 1 Corinthians 4, verses 10 to 12. Was Paul acting rashly or were the false apostles? And it... It's very possible here that Paul was employing the character of a fool as was used and was well familiar to the people, the citizens of the city of Corinth. In, in the Greek theater, the fool was used by the playwright to address boldly things he wanted the, the audience to hear. But he did it in such a way that uh, they would hear it. And I think maybe Paul was using that. I, I, I'm the fool here in the theater, and I'm going to address you, and you're going to listen to it, because I'm going to entertain you by it. But Paul cautioned them not that it was not of the flesh. Paul would use it... Uh, he says, you bear with fools because you are very wise and yourselves. Paul feared that as the serpent had deceived Eve by his cunning, their thoughts would be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. People who consider themselves wise may actually end up looking foolish if their view is based on false assumptions or self-glorification. Paul was desperate that these saints not look foolish in the end by imitating their self-glorifying false teachers. So the church's willingness to endure these apostles allowed them to be enslaved with false spiritual demands. I mean, they're sitting back getting robbed with a grin on their face. 
the Judaistic law-keeping requirements, as we've discussed earlier. They they came to the church and said, Jesus, believe in Jesus, yes, but you also have to be circumcised. you got to keep the rules. You know, we obey the law. The law is laid out very clearly. The law is a reflection of the character of God. We want to conform to the, to the character of God, so therefore we're going to keep His law. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not commit adultery, etc., etc. Don't covet. The law is good. But the Pharisees had added so many other commands and interpretations to the law that it was impossible to keep by even the, 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 the Pharisees themselves. Now these Judaizers were employing the same technique on the church to enslave the church from the freedom that they had in Jesus Christ to a legalistic standard. Not only that, but they took advantage of them spiritually, exploiting them financially, and in their hubris, even going so far as to strike them on the face. I'm not sure if that, that's literal or figurative, but Paul said, you they'll come and slap you in the face and you grin. As if this was good. Their striking some on the face was the height of insolence on their part. But it also showed the servile endurance on the part of the church. They were caving to it. So Paul, following the example of Jesus Christ, revolted against this tactic and said, I must say, we are too weak for that. Paul's not saying, it's not that we couldn't do it, says, we won't do it. We would never go that far. Those then trying to undo Paul's ministry argued that grace alone lacked substance. They insisted that there was more to it than that. True, one needed to believe in Jesus, but that alone was insufficient. They must embrace Judaism, legalism, ritualism, and other spiritual regulations. And they base their authority and bold assumptions on three areas which they rashly boasted proved their superiority over Paul. And that's what he deals with now in the remainder of this chapter. And here's what they are. The boasted, I'll give you the three, their ancestral lineage. They were Israelites. Secondly, their... Uh, ministerial license. They were the apostles of Christ. And thirdly, their personal legacy. How, how, they, how they came across to, to people. And Paul answers those three, those three areas. First of all, concerning his ancestral lineage. A true Israelite. Paul says in verse 22, Look, uh, uh, in the Philippians, he, he really lays it out in uh, Philippians chapter 3. Because he's, he's dealing with them again. He says, look out for the dogs. Who's he what, when, in Philippians, when he says, look out for the dogs, who's the dogs? It's not your neighbor's yappers. <laughs> it's these Judaizers. He said, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, circumcision, for those who are, uh, for, for we are the circumcision, we, we are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And what he means by that is not that, that he was a descendant of, 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 uh, of Abraham, but Hebrew of the Hebrews meant he was a Jewish puritist in contrast with the Hellenists who had adopted uh, Greek standards and Greek culture. As to the law, he says, a Pharisee. He understands what Phariseeism is all about. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel as a youth and was taught in Jerusalem. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Philippians 3, verses 2 to 7. Then, as with respect to ministerial license, he said, I'm a slave of Christ. Are they servants of Christ? I, I'm, I'm a better one. Following the example of Christ, Paul exhibited humility and perseverance. These two things. First, humility. Serving Christ meant following his example of humility. Not arrogant domination of the sheep, like these false teachers who subjugated them, even slapping, slapping them in the face. Isaiah describes the servant spirit of Jesus Christ in the 42nd chapter of Isaiah, beginning with verse 1, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. Isn't that interesting? He's not going to be one of these eloquent speakers. Or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not, that is, he's not going to compromise either. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This text was cited by, Mo, by Matthew in Matthew chapter 12 and, I, and applied to Jesus Christ. So then in John 13, Jesus himself teaching his disciples said, If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. That was a duty assigned to the lowest member of the servant's roster there in a, in a, in a man's household. And Jesus took that lowest spot and humbled himself and washed the feet of the disciples. And he says, Now if I've washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example of what you should do just as I have, just as I have done Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not a slave. It, this is doulos. Why the, I guess there's such an abhorrence to, to slavery in, among the English speakers that uh, they don't like to use the term slave, but that's the, what the word means, slave. So, Jesus says, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And this is exactly what Paul was seeking to do. Now it's perseverance. And as I pointed out last week, this, this is the, really the proof of the apostles' genuineness. As he lays it out here, what he endured to, to, to uh, prove the genuineness of his service for Christ. He patiently endured great hardships to fulfill the will of God. So in verses 23 to 28, are they servants of Christ? Are they slaves of Christ? <laughs> I am a better one. 
and I'm speaking like a madman. Talk about rash, rashness. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes save one. Five times! Many people who were beaten like this died from the beating. Once! Paul endured it five times! Three times I was beaten with rods. That's Roman punishment. A rod. Not a whip. A rod. Very few people live through the beating, a, a Roman beating with a rod too. Paul said, I got that three times. Once I was stoned. That was in Lystra. That's recorded in Acts chapter 14. Where they took him out and stoned him with stones and left him dead. And the disciples stood around. I think Paul died. In fact, the vision that he has in, in the, the, that he's going to describe in the 12th chapter may have occurred after that beating. We're not told that and I, I'm speculating. But think about that. Stoned to death. And we're not talking little rocks either. We're talking about boulders. Boom! Stone, stone, then taken outside the city and thrown out outside the gate and left for dead. But he got up. <laughs> How he got up, that was a miracle of God. Then he says, three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger from in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardships through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure and apart from all these other things, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. Ah. So it reminds me of what he said back in the 10th chapter there, verses 17 and 18. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is, the, it is not the one who commends himself who is approved but the one whom the Lord commands. Paul wasn't saying these things to show that you know to to defend himself personally. I don't think his ego here is the issue. Paul is not trying to restore his ego. He's trying to win this church back to Jesus. I espouse you to Jesus. Now I want you to come back to the, to the bridegroom who has espoused you. And tell these false apostles to take a hike. Paul has demonstrated right here that his perseverance is what got him through. But then... He goes to the, another thing, a personal, an issue of personal legacy. And I, this, I want you to see this one. This one really struck me. And I, I did a lot of study on this. His personal legacy. Divinely ordered weakness. Divinely ordered weakness. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now notice, there's the context, the weakness. The, and then he, he says, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever and ever, knows that I am not lying. 
he puts in that extra measure there. And then he describes the situation. And here's where, at the first reading, you don't, you're, you're not going to take it. But then if you study it, you will, I think, understand what Paul is saying here. He sets this apart from the other things. And he sets it apart with this disclaimer. I'm not lying. And the Lord knows me. Knows that I'm not lying. What's he talking about here? And he describes it. I must boast of the, the, the things that will show my weakness. And that's not the only one. He's going to go into chapter 12 and deal with another one. We're not going to deal with that one this morning. But I think this incident here, and here's the incident. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now, that is described in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9 is when we have the conversion of the Apostle Paul, and he's on his way to Damascus with letters from the high priest to do great damage in the church. But before he gets there, Jesus stopped him. And he, he enters the city blind. And then we, we read here of his, uh, uh, how he is, his sight is restored. And then he is uh, commissioned. But the, uh, the prophet by the name of Ananias, a disciple there in, at Damascus, the Lord said to him, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. The Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of, of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has had a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, that he might receive uh, regain his sight. But Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind those who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great or how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And what happened? We find here, if you skip down to, uh, to the end of verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he, pro he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him, all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and of those who call, uh, of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul, notice, Saul increased more and more in strength. and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. But that didn't stop the Jews from trying to kill him. And so he is let down by night in a basket from the wall. Now what, what, what is Paul trying to tell us with this? We read in, in this Acts when he is delivered, uh, the very next verse, that's verse 25, and in the, uh, the uh, very next verse, we read, and when he had come to Jerusalem. So it sounds like he left Damascus, went right up into Jerusalem. But no, that's not what happened. What, what we read from Paul's own testimony 
in Galatians chapter 1. Let me just share this briefly with you. And verse 15, But when he who had sent me, set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, when? When he was going to Damascus. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Now, he's, he, what he's arguing here is, the gospel I'm preaching to you came from God, not from the apostles in Jerusalem. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. Some suggest that he may have gone to Mount Sinai. And then returned to Damascus. To the very city he escaped. Then, after three years, he went up to Jerusalem. Which is recorded in, in Acts chapter 9 verse 26. When he got up to Jerusalem, what happened? Whoa, we're not going to touch this guy. And then it was the Hellenists up there that sought to kill him. And he, es and he escaped Jerusalem. Went back, into, went back to Tarsus. And he remained there for many, for many months. Until Barnabas found him and took him to Antioch. Now, here's, the, here's what I'm trying to say by this. Here's what weakness actually means and what it reveals. We are servants of God. And He directs our steps even when we do not understand what He is doing. And I believe the principle here is I am going to glory, I am going to glory in what is the hardest thing in my life. When I was let down. When things weren't working out. When I was wondering where the Lord was. The Lord has said, I'm going to use you to preach my gospel before kings and the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And then he's just run out of the city. And left alone. No one to comfort him. He goes off into Arabia. We don't know for how long. Then returned to Damascus. Nothing famous. Nothing Brilliant going on here. Three years. Lord, where are you? The greatest glory in my whole life was when the doors I thought you would open were shut tight. Because it was then that God had His way. I I'm a servant of Christ. I wanted to be used. But things did not go as I hoped. The weeks turned into months. The months into the years. And I wondered, what is happening? That time that I was denied the ministry, I thought, I was called to turned out to be the very important lesson in my life of my service to Jesus Christ. So in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10 he says for I am now for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God or am I trying to please men and if I were trying to please man I should not be the slave of Christ. Hmm. That's what God does. Sometimes we wonder, what is He doing? Where do I fit into this? I guess I'm not so important after all. I'm going to close with this question. Who are you living for? 
And when he disappoints you like he disappointed Paul here, what's your response to it? In preparing this lesson, I was reminded of a song that I recently heard by Ben Hastings and Brian Fowler and Carrie, Carrie Job. But listen, listen to the lyrics of this song, The Cause of Christ. <clears throat> the only thing I want in life is to be known for loving Christ, to build His church, to love His bride, and make His name known far and wide. He is all my soul will prize regardless of the joy or trial. When agonizing questions rise, in Jesus all my hopes abide. In other words, when everything I hope to, to show as my success in my service for Christ looks like nothing, and these, that's an agonizing question. My hope resides in Jesus. He'll work it all out for His glory. And the third stanza, It is not fame that I desire or stature in my brother's eyes. I pray it's said about my life that I live more to build your name than mine. For this cause I live for this cause I die. I surrender all for the cause of Christ. All I once held dear, I will leave behind. For my joy is this, oh, the cause of Christ. Father, we ask what's happening, and we are often outwardly disappointed with what we see to be the result. But oh, that we might learn this lesson that Paul, I think, is trying to t tell us here. We'd rather boast in our weakness and not seek the approval of men, but of, that, but of God, or to try to please men, but to try only to please God because we're servants of Christ. Lord, may it be true of us that the only thing that we're known for is our love for Christ, our love for His church, our love for His bride, and our desire to make His name known far and wide. Father, I pray all of us here that this may be the bottom line of our lives. May Jesus Christ be praised. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.